0: Navigate the journey to becoming a great lawyer with expert guidance on topics that range from trial skills to corner office management. Here you will learn how to tap into your potential for legal greatness. I'm Andrew Smiley, and this is The Mentor, ESQ. Hello everyone. I'm so glad to have you here today. We got just about 900 of you for this topic or these topics. So I guess it's uh, what we're going to be talking about is of interest. And I'm glad to have you here. Happy end of year. Happy December. Uh, All good things must come to an end as is this series on uh, Back to Basics. We are now in part three of three, the end of this series. And today, what I thought would be super important to talk about is how to get items into evidence and how to impeach witnesses. Uh, This is not going to be a presentation on direct exam or cross exam. It's these two specific areas. And I'm going to go through both of them so that by the end of today, uh, we all feel very comfortable that at trial, we'll be able to get an item into evidence and we'll be able to beat up on witnesses and impeach them when the time comes at trial on cross-examination. A few um, sort of housekeeping things, questions and answers I will take uh, perhaps during the the one hour here, I'll take a look if there are any, please, any questions you have, put them in the Q&A and I'll take a look when uh, the polls are going on or we break again. And then we have a half an hour from 2 to 2.30 just for Q&A. And I am positive you will have some questions and I am positive some of those questions will get into other areas of direct and cross-exam uh, that I'll be happy to answer in the Q&A from 2 to 2.30. So please stay along for that. Uh, Although this series is coming to an end, my next series is going to start right after the new year on January 3rd. Uh, Again, I'll be uh, here to present on the first Wednesdays of most months, so if you want to put it in your calendar... The next series we're going to call Novel Negligence Cases, and each month I'm going to talk about an interesting type of case you may not come across in your practice, such as personal trainer and gym cases, ski and snowboard accident cases, jet ski cases, fire cases, dram shop cases, and we'll go through each of those so that if one of those cases comes your way next year, you will be ready and prepared to handle them. All right, the materials for today. In the materials today you don't need to look at them at all and i don't even want you to look at them until we're done uh because i'm going to go over everything so they will be a good resource to have uh, to refresh you on what we're going to go through today on how to get items into evidence and how to impeach witnesses the materials have been taken straight from my new book yes i'm happy to announce today my second book in the mentor esq handbook series on trial skills, successful trial skills, a practical guide to jury selection, opening statements, cross-examination, direct examination, and closing arguments. It drops January 1st. You could pre-order the Kindle now. Uh, Just go to the link uh, that you can find if you scan this flow code next to me for my books and uh but the kindle uh is the only one you can pre-order now and that will not have all the appendix materials uh, but on the first on amazon you'll be able to get the hard or paperback which will have all the appendix materials sample crosses sample openings directs and the like so keep an eye out for that and again the materials are just pull outs from my sections on direct and cross where i talk about how to get things into evidence and how to impeach let's get to it because time is going to go fast as always All right. So I've been in a lot of trials uh, over the last couple of decades, and I hate to see my adversaries or when I'm watching a trial, whoever they are, I hate to see fellow lawyers stumble when it comes time to do something important, such as introducing an item into evidence. Now, a trial, whether you're on the plaintiff side or the defense side, you will need to get certain things into evidence, right, to either make your case, defend your case proven element. And the way you get items into evidence is primarily one of two ways, through testimony of a witness or through moving some type of document or material or record or photo or video that becomes physical evidence. So you've got testimonial and physical evidence. Testimonial, we're not going to talk about today. We're going to talk about how you get things into evidence that need to be there for the jury to see, for your witness or your experts to use a trial and to make out a prima facie case if you're a plaintiff and to make out the elements of your defense uh, if you are a defendant. And if it's not in the record, either through testimony or through a physical item, then it doesn't exist. If you lose your case or win your case and it goes up on appeal, if it's not in the record, it doesn't count. The appellate court doesn't even know it's there. So it's really important that if there's something you need to get into evidence, that photo, that document, that smoking gun, that report, whatever it is, you have to make sure you get it in right and you have to plan for it. Don't just assume because sometimes it's easy to figure out how to get it in. Sometimes it's not. But when it's time to move something into evidence at trial, there are certain steps that every attorney must follow to move something into evidence. Now, Most items need a foundational witness. Most of the time, you're going to be moving items into evidence through a witness on the stand, and it'll usually be your witness, not your adverse witness. Usually it's your witness uh, because you're preparing, and it's that witness that knows about the document or the physical item that it is. A simple example that we're going to use today is a car accident case. And you need to get the photograph in uh, from your client, whether it's the plaintiff or defendant, that shows the damage to their car after the accident. OK, but the steps that we're going to go through today are the same, whether it's a photo, whether it's a video, whether it's a report or a business record, whatever item it is that that witness can lay the foundation for. Not all pieces of evidence need a foundation witness. So. You can always go first to the CPLR and see, maybe I don't need to have a witness on the stand to put this item into evidence. You wanna check out CPLR 4518 business records. There are many business records that can go right into evidence without needing to go through what we're gonna discuss today, okay? Such as a hospital bill that's been certified or a hospital record. You don't need a foundational witness uh, to get those items into evidence. There are certain requirements that if you exchange them in time and they're certified, uh, that you can just offer them right into evidence at the, even before a jury's in or at the start of a trial um, or whenever you want to, but without a witness on the stand. You can do your homework. There's lots of ways to get things in without a foundational witness. We're not going to talk about that now. Now we're going to talk about what to do when you have a witness on the stand. Okay? So the first thing that you want to do is figure out which items through which witnesses you want to get in through trial and that's part of the prep process and i talk a lot about this in my book that's coming out next month on trial skills you're always connecting your witness at trial with the important evidence at trial and you're going to have under each witness you call which items of evidence you plan to get into evidence through that witness so let's say we have a photograph and i'm representing my client oscar and oscar is uh, in a car accident and we wanna show that his car got badly damaged and that'll explain why his injuries are so bad. But we need to get that photograph into evidence. So how are we gonna do that? Well, the first thing that you should know, and some people uh, don't know this, is that it doesn't matter who took the photograph, okay? It doesn't matter who took the photograph. As long as the witness can lay the foundation that the photograph what it is, that it fairly and accurately represents what it is, that it depicts what they believe it depicts, it shows the damage, that it's going to aid in a system at the time of trial. Those are the foundations, and we're going to go through how you ask those questions. If you don't ask the questions properly of a witness, then when it's time to offer that item into evidence and your adversary objects, They don't even need to say why half the time. The judge is going to know. The judge is going to sustain the objection. And then the lawyer is going to try it again. And they're going to try the foundation of questions again until they can get it right. And if you don't have it right, it can be super embarrassing for you. And not only embarrassing, but it could lead to you not getting a very important piece of evidence in. I share the story in the materials and in my book of uh, a case when I was a young lawyer, either in law school or newly admitted, I was watching my father guy at a trial and our client was injured, had a knee injury. And at the time of trial, the defense lawyer, the adversary, had surveillance video footage that he wanted to get in through the videographer or the investigator who took it. And he's up there and he's got their videotapes back then uh, before uh, we just launch everything digitally. And he's trying to move the videotape into evidence. But there was one foundation question that he kept not asking. And every time he tried to move it in, and then he'd say, we offer it into evidence, my father would stand up, objection. The judge would turn and say, sustained. And it went on like this for like 10, 15 minutes. It was embarrassing for the lawyer. It was really pretty bad. And finally, I think the judge, um, if you all remember, Ira Gammerman was the judge. He called the lawyer over and kind of, I think, told him <laughs> what the foundation question was. But you never want that to happen, okay? And that's after today, that will never happen to you. So- The first thing that you need to do is mark the exhibit for identification. Now, what that is, is typically what will happen is before whatever this item is, a photograph, a piece of paper, um, the smoking gun, whatever it is, it has to be marked for identification. When something is marked for identification, that basically means it's not in evidence yet, but you're going to want to refer to it while you're putting in these foundation questions to get it in evidence. There's two ways that something is marked for identification. The common way is at the time that you're about to try and offer it in through the witness. And that's what we're going to talk about today. But another method just to be on the lookout, I talk about in my book, and I'm happy to talk about it in the Q&A or in a one-on-one if you want to book it with me, is pre-marking exhibits. In state court, And most judges don't have you pre-mark exhibits. That's when you give a marking number or letter to every exhibit that you think you're going to offer at the time of trial before trial. So if you have 12 photos and, and another 10 documents, you've got 22. It'll be plaintiffs 1 through 22. And the defendants would have letters A through G usually. And you have it in a spreadsheet, the number and what it is. Plaintiffs 1, photo of car. Plaintiffs 2, photo two of car, plaintiff's three injury photo. And you exchange that with your adversary. You each have your pre-marked, you give it to the judge. And then when it's time to offer it into evidence, you would say, we'd like to approach the witness with what has been pre-marked as exhibit one. That's pre-marking. But for all of us, mostly we're gonna be marking it as we go. We're not gonna be pre-marking it. Again, when you get to trial, you get assigned to your trial judge, ask them, your honor, do you want us to pre-mark exhibits or do you want them marked at the time that we intend to offer them in evidence? Most state judges will say, mark it as you go. So here's what you do. You've got a photograph and the photograph of the car, you're holding it up in your hand. I know you can't really see it. I'm just holding a little piece of paper. And what you do is You're going to keep track. It's important to try to keep track of all your exhibits. So have a page preset marked as in evidence as usually it's the same number, but if it doesn't get in evidence or it goes out of order, the in evidence number may be different than the mark number. So I'm going to walk you through the process and one straight walkthrough, and then I'm going to go back and break it down. Here's how it works. I am now plaintiff's lawyer. I've got my client Oscar on the stand. And I want to get this photograph of his car into evidence. I'm in the middle of my direct examination. And I say, your honor, may we have this item marked as plaintiff's one for identification? The judge will say, yes, show it to your adversary and then come up and have it marked. I then turn to my defense counsel. I show it to them. And I say, your honor, may the record reflect. I'm showing what we'd like to have marked as exhibit one for identification to my adversary. May I approach? Yes, counsel, you may approach. You walk up to the witness and the court reporter sitting there. Sometimes they'll ask you to give it to the uh, court officer and you'll hand it to them and say, may I have this marked as plaintiff's one for identification? The judge will say, yes, so marked as plaintiff's exhibit one for identification. And then they give it back to you. It has a little marking for identification on it. Exhibit one for identification. Then you say, may I approach the witness, your honor, with what's just been marked as plaintiff's one for identification? The judge will say, yes, you may approach. Then I will approach my client or the witness. I will keep the exhibit away from sight of the jury. A juror is not allowed to see any item that is not already in evidence. So you never want to have your back to a juror, but you don't want them to see it. And sometimes we have things blown up you know, court exhibits. So you just, whatever it is that you're bringing up, make sure the jury can't see it. Otherwise you're going to get in trouble, okay? They cannot see it until it is actually in evidence. So you walk up without the jury being able to see it and you show it to the witness. I will show it to Oscar and I will say, Oscar, I'm showing you what's just been marked as plaintiff's exhibit one for identification. Do you recognize it? That's always your first question. And he will say, yes. And I will say, and what do you recognize it to be? It's a photograph of my car. And does this photograph fairly and accurately depict the damage to your car immediately after this accident? Yes, it does. And will this photograph aid and assist you in your testimony today? Yes, it will. Your Honor, we now offer what's been marked as plaintiff's exhibit one for identification into evidence as plaintiff's exhibit one the judge will then turn to my adversary and say any objection the adversary if you've done everything right and exchange all your exhibits in advance and worked it out will stand up and say no objection your honor the judge will say accepted it'll now be in as plaintiff's exhibit one once that happens and by the way, just stepping back, the only real basis for an objection would be if it has hearsay in it, uh, if the foundation isn't laid properly, like I gave him my example, you'd object, improper foundation, right? But if you do the steps properly, you've given your adversary notice that you're going to offer it into evidence, which you should do. Trials are not surprises. You need to exchange your evidence in advance, especially something you plan to admit into evidence. So if your adversary stands up, your honor, I've never seen this photograph until today. Just now, Mr. Smiley showed it to me. Um, we object. We have an attempt to review it with our clients. Then the judge may look at me, Mr. Smiley. I'll say, your honor, and I'll pull out my disclosure. I sent this to the defense counsel two months ago. Here's my letter. Oh, okay. All right. Once it is in evidence, then you can show it to the jury and you have a choice of what you want to do. You can ask to publish it to the jury and publishing to the jury means holding it up and you can walk it right in front of the jury. Um, If it's something small or something that can be passed around, you can ask to give it to uh, the court officer to pass it around to the members of the jury. We'll do that sometimes with um, photographs, maybe showing scarring in a sensitive area where we don't want to have to have our client drop their drawers. We'll pass the photo around or something close or maybe it's a document that you move into evidence that has an important signature that you want the jurors to see. So once it's in evidence, then it's, you can use it. Your adversary can use it. Okay. If it's an exhibit, maybe it's an enlargement of a photograph and you want your client to step down and point things out. You put it up on the easel. You would then say, your honor, we'd now like to, you know, may I have um, Oscar step down to the exhibit, to the photograph? Yes, you may. Okay. And then you can go through, the exhibit at that time. But those are the steps to getting an item into evidence. And the same steps will generally apply, whether it's a a record, a video. So let me go through the specific questions that you need to ask for the foundation again and show you how you can alter them a little bit depending on what it is that you're going to offer into evidence. Let me give Michelle her chance to do the quick and break. Then we'll go through these questions. If you're joining us via podcast, the first attendance verification code for today's course is P O D three zero six. Again, that's P O D three zero six. All right, so here's the key the words don't need to be exact except for a couple of them. So whenever you're offering something to your witness to get into evidence, You need to ask them what it is. Do they recognize it? What am I showing you? What is this? Okay, let them say what it is. And then you need to use the phrase, does it fairly and accurately represent and then fill in the blank of what you wanted to show. That was the missing step when the lawyer was trying to get the surveillance video in. He should have said, and he kept failing to say, does it fairly and accurately depict the video footage you took of the plaintiff on this date. Okay. And he failed to say that. So all he was saying was, what is this? It's video. Did you take it? Yeah, I took it. And what is it? It's video footage surveillance. Then he offered it in evidence and it didn't fly because he didn't say, does it fairly and accurately represent the footage that you took that day? all right? So it's really important. That is a catchphrase that you want to use. Does it fairly and accurately represent? And that is going to be used whether it's a document. So let's say you have someone on the stand, you want to get um, a report uh, from their company that showed that they um, went and investigated the elevator for maintenance and found it was faulty, okay? And there's a finding of why it it, it dropped three stories. You're going to Walk up again, do the whole marking. You're going to show it to that witness. I'm handing you what we've just marked as plaintiffs 2 for identification. Do you recognize it? Yes. What do you recognize this to be? Oh, this is a report we generate um, after we go out to uh, investigate any elevator malfunctions, uh, which indicates, you know, what we find. And then you want to say when it's a record, was this generated in the ordinary course of business? In your line of work, or in your company, or at uh, Acme Elevator Company? And they say yes. All right? And does this fairly and accurately represent uh, the report that was generated? And usually they'll say, yeah, this is an exact duplicate. This is it. Okay, and I know one of the questions uh, that I quickly saw was about if you don't have an original, you usually don't need originals as long as they can say it's a fair and accurate copy. Mm -hmm. That's usually what certifications are for um, Mm -hmm. to certify that it's a fair and accurate uh, and true copy. So you don't always need originals in some matters. You may maybe in surrogate's court, you need an original death certificate. I'm not sure. I don't practice there, but for the most part, it's fairly and accurately. What is it? And if it's a document or a police report, right, sometimes you want to put the police officer on the stand to get a police report in. And did you generate this police report uh, in the normal course of your business as a responding police officer? Yes, I did. And is this your signature? Yes, it is. And does this contain all the information that you got from the drivers at the scene that day? Yes, it does. Okay. So technically a police report, you need a foundational witness. You need a police officer, but- Usually, uh, you can step that in. Uh, I remember in a case I had where, um, I was in front of his honor, his honor, uh, judge Sampson in Queens. And he said, why are you subpoenaing the police officer? I said, I need to get the police report in. And he turned to my adversary and said, you're going to make them bring a police officer who's protecting us off the streets to come in to get a police report in. Why won't you stipulate to it? And he said, well, I need to speak to my clients. And the judge was like i want an answer tomorrow morning and i'm highly recommending that you step i don't want to bring a police officer unless we really have to and so that's how that played out but whatever it is it's what is it do you recognize it does it fairly and accurately represent what's depicted what you want to show yes uh if applicable you say was it generally in the normal course of business and then it's will it aid and assist you in your testimony to this jury or to the judge today yes then you offer it in evidence, and you've laid the foundation, okay? Now, I know there's gonna be, there's already questions, and there's gonna be a lot more about, how do you get this in, and how do you get a tax return, and how do you get that in? Um, Again, first, check your rules. You're gonna check the CPLR, you're gonna check the rules of evidence, you're gonna check on issues such as hearsay, you're gonna check in federal rules if you're in federal court, you're gonna check local rules in whatever jurisdiction you're in, okay? And primarily, see if you can work out an agreement with your adversary before trial. You should know everything you wanna move in. You should send it to your adversary. This is what we intend to introduce. Please let me know if you have an objection. Uh, If I don't hear from you within a few weeks, I'll assume you have no objection. And the CPLR actually provides for some items that you can move in without a foundational witness, such as x-rays and CT scans, as long as you go through a process of notifying your adversary. So do your homework. On that, in the rules, I'm talking about what to do at trial, how to get something into evidence. Everything I just went through is in the materials. It's in the chapter on direct examination in my upcoming book. And uh, so you'll have it there and go through it. Um, So hopefully that has been helpful on how you get something into evidence. It's pretty straightforward, but you gotta know how to do it. And you wanna be crisp. Everything we do at trial, crisp movements, have everything ready, Be prepared, be organized. Have all your exhibits, have them all ready for pre-marking, knowing what you want them to be pre-marked. Have them ready for each witness in a folder. So right at the right point in your outline, go to photo one, enter photo one. I'm asking questions. I see it's photo one. I grab it. Your Honor, we'd like to have this marked as plaintiff's exhibit one. Show it to adversary. Approach. You want to have everything practiced, rehearsed, smooth nice and smooth. I talk about in my book, a direct exam is like directing an actor in a play. It's the behind the scenes smoothness, choreography. You don't necessarily notice bad acting uh, until you see bad acting. Then you're like, wow, that was bad. Um, Same way with the trial lawyer. If you do a great job on direct, if you move things in smoothly uh, into evidence, Maybe no one's going to say, hey, that was a really good direct exam, but you'll know it. And if you see someone who can't move items into evidence smoothly, crisply, with the proper foundation questions, it's just it looks really bad to the jurors. And you don't want to have your adversary sitting back snickering that you can't lay the foundation questions. All right. Moving on now from what we do on direct to get an item into evidence, we're going to talk about impeaching witnesses, right? This is something that I also see many trial lawyers struggle with. And there's no reason to struggle with it if you're prepared and you know the proper way to do it. And that's what I'm here to help you do. Again, I go through all the steps um, in the materials and in my book that the materials are from on how to impeach a witness. Um, before you go to impeach, there's a lot of preparation you need to do. And in cross-examination, like any other thing in trial that you are doing doing as far as examinations, presentations. It's the behind the scenes preparation that's important. You'll see in my book and in my prior lectures on cross-examination, you need to digest transcripts. You need to have an outline of the questions you're going to ask. You need to have at your fingertips uh, where I talk about digesting transcripts. It's a way you go through, you take the transcript, you flip through all the pages. And if that witness says and an example i give in my book i talk about a subway case where if i'm cross-examining um the train operator i who hit my client on the tracks because he didn't stop the train in try in time i know from the deposition that that train operator said he saw something on the tracks when he was three car lengths away a train car is approximately 60 feet so three times out 180 feet away The more, the further you are away, the more time you have to stop. If you're only one car length away and you're 60 feet away, you don't have much time to stop. And it's more excusable why you may not have stopped in time if you're only one car length away. So I know going into this trial that I had that that witness said three car lengths at his deposition. I know it was on page 13, line five. It's in my digest. And when I'm questioning that witness in cross-examination at trial... I want to make sure I lock down that he was three car lengths away because maybe he tried to, he's going to try and change and say he was only one car length away and there's no way I could have stopped in time. All right. So it's very important. I've built my whole case. I know at three car lengths away, he could have stopped in time. Our engineer is going to say that. Our experts are going to say he should have stopped the train. So when it comes time for cross-examination, I know I have that answer on the page in line in my digest, in my notes. So when I'm cross-examining, and again, we're not going to get into too much, but it's all in my materials that you can access. I will get to the point where I'll say on cross-examination, and sir, when you first saw what you thought was garbage on the tracks, you were three car lengths away, weren't you? And he's got to say yes. And if he doesn't say yes, and he says, uh, no, that's not right. I think I was only about one car length away that's when it signals in your mind time to impeach this person time to impeach this witness time to smack this witness down for not giving a true answer that was given a year or so ago in the deposition now having probably met with the lawyers and in front of the jury maybe trying to change their answer okay but we're in control on cross-examination we know what the answers are that we have we know the important stuff and if they don't step in line with our question we impeach that's what impeachment is for impeachment is to highlight when a witness on the stand at cross-examination gives an answer that is inconsistent with an answer that they previously gave under oath now that could be at the deposition in your case or maybe it's an expert witness who's testified in lots of cases and you have depositions all over and you could say something like you're on record that um that trains uh, should never go faster than 30 miles an hour, aren't you? And they say, no, I'm not, right? But maybe you've got a transcript from them as an expert in another case where they say, oh, yeah, trains routinely go 35 miles an hour, all right? You can impeach them with that transcript. So as long as you have a prior inconsistent statement under oath, then you can impeach the witness by referring to that statement to highlight that they're saying one thing in front of the judge or jury now at trial because they wanted to help them, but previously they gave a test an answer under oath that was different, that won't help them at trial, that's why they're not giving, all right? That's when you want to impeach. That's when you want to highlight to the jury, you're not messing around, you're not letting this witness come and say different things. This is what you've got this witness locked down and saying, and now they're trying to pull one over on the jury. That's when you want to impeach. So rule number one, only impeach when a you know you have a prior inconsistent statement and B that it's important, okay? If the, if they if they testify they woke up at 7 am and you've got them saying 6: 30 a.m in a prior thing, it doesn't really matter in your case. If it doesn't matter, don't waste your time impeaching. Okay. And again, rule one, make sure it's an inconsistent statement. If his prior answer at his deposition, when I said, how many car lanes away were you? And he says, I'm not sure, maybe one to three. And then at trial, when I say you were three car lanes away, weren't you? And he says, no. And then I go to impeach and I read the question and answer. And he says, one to three car lanes. That's not a contradictory or inconsistent statement and i see that a lot happen in trials that i'm on where my adversaries will try and impeach my clients and there's and they and they start going through the foundation questions we're going to discuss and then when it comes to i'm looking at my deposition that i have of my client and my notes i'm like where are they going my client didn't say anything inconsistent and then it's an improper impeachment you can object you could say objection this is an improper impeachment and then the client is not going to give, show it to be inconsistent. It's a waste of time. So, if you are going to impeach, make sure it's inconsistent and make sure it's something that's important. Okay, it's something. It's an opportunity for you to highlight your skill set in front of the jury that you're, and to highlight that this jury is trying to. The, I'm sorry that the witness is trying to pull something over on the jury. Right? They're trying to say something and they're being inconsistent. All right. So if you're going to impeach, you want it to be on something good and important and clearly inconsistent. And the way to do that is you have to lock them down. Okay. You have to lock them down. So in my example, if I say, well, you were three car lanes away when you first saw something on the tracks, weren't you, sir? And he says, um, I don't really remember. Okay. Then you say, well, would it refresh your recollection if I told you that you previously testified that you were three car lanes away? Right. Nah, that doesn't re- refresh my recollection. Right. Then instead of an impeachment, you can refresh the recollection, which is basically you can walk up and hand them a copy of their transcript. Your Honor, may I approach? May the record reflect, I'm showing this witness, this witness's transcript dated so-and-so, page 25, line 3. Sir, read page 25, line 3. See that question? See your answer? Does that answer refresh your recollection? Yes, it does. So you previously said three car lanes, correct? Yes. All right? So you wouldn't impeach there because you're refreshing their recollection. But let's say they say something like, well, I don't know. Maybe it was one car length, two car lengths. I'm not really sure. Don't go right into impeachment. Follow up. Say, well, tell the jury right now how many car lengths away was it? Are you saying you're not sure? Are you saying it, it was either one or two? Is that your testimony? Yeah, that's my testimony. I was one or two car lengths away. All right. Then you have locked them down because you know that you have in your notes On page and line that this witness said three car lanes unequivocally okay so then you go to impeach and these are the foundation questions and again they're in the materials so don't worry if you miss them now I'm going to go through them and then we'll break it down and again the exact words and exact order doesn't matter as much as long as you get all this out somehow so here's what you do the witness says yeah I think it was one to two car lanes and I know I've got three car lanes in his prior deposition. I say, I stop at that point. I've locked him in. Okay, so you're saying one to two car lanes? Yes. Sir, do you recall testifying at a deposition prior to this case coming to trial earlier on in this case? Yes, I do. So first you're like, well, actually, let me go through it all and then we'll break it down. And at that deposition, you had a lawyer there with you, right? Yes, I did. And I asked you questions, or you could say my colleague or a lawyer asked you questions about this accident at your deposition at that time, right? Yes, that's right. And the lawyer was with you. Yes, yes. And you took an oath to tell the truth before being asked those questions and before giving answers, didn't you? Yes. Same oath you took today, right? An oath to tell the truth. Yes. And you gave truthful answers at that deposition, didn't you? Yes. And after you completed that deposition, you had a chance to review your transcript and make any changes to your transcript. Right. Yes. And in fact, you did make changes or you didn't and you didn't make any changes, did you? All right. And by the way, before you impeach and when you're going through their transcript, see if they made any changes. It'll be on the errata sheet on the back. If they didn't make any changes or submit an errata sheet, then they're all deemed valid. And if they did make changes, make sure they didn't change the question you're going to impeach on, because then you'll look silly. Uh, make sure they didn't change the answer to the question you want to impeach on, okay? But usually you'll say, and you didn't make any changes, did you? Or "And you made whatever changes you thought were necessary. Correct? Correct. Right? Then you say, then you hold up the deposition, and do you recall... Um, At your deposition, being asked the following questions and giving the following answers. You recall being asked the following questions and giving the following answers. Then at that moment, you pause. You turn to the judge and your adversary. Say, your honor, counsel, I'm referring to the witness's deposition transcript from January 25th, 2021. Page 17. Starting at line 13. Question. How far away were you when you first saw what you thought was garbage on the tracks? Answer. Turn to the jury. Three car lanes. Turn back to the witness. Sir, do you recall being asked that question and giving that answer? And then the witness will probably say something like, oh, yeah, I guess I did, or yeah, maybe I didn't remember that, or I guess so, or I don't recall. If they say anything other than acknowledging that that was the answer, then you say, Your Honor, I'd ask counsel to um, stipulate on the record that that was a fair and accurate reading of the questions and answers from this witness's prior sworn testimony on this date. And the lawyer has to say, yeah, that, that that's right. Okay. So just by doing that alone, that helps your side of the case, because you're getting their own lawyer to agree. Or the court may just say, all right, the court will take judicial notice. I have a copy of the transcript. By the way, bring copies of all adverse witness transcripts with you to court. When that witness is there, you are required to have an extra copy for the judge. You don't need to bring one for your adversary, but when you're going to impeach, Right during this process at any time or before you read the page in line, Your Honor, I have a copy for the court of this witness's uh, trial testimony, a pre-trial testimony or deposition transcript. Would the court like a courtesy copy? Judge will say, yes, they love it. Yes, Mr. Smiley. So then the court can sit, the judge can look along and read with you. So it scores you good points with the judge and it helps things move more smoothly. And then it's not just you sharing your one, Highlighted transcript with everybody. If defense counsel or your adversary or plaintiff's counsel doesn't have a copy of their own witnesses' transcript, that's their problem. But bring one for the judge. Okay. Then you get the witness to acknowledge or say, oh, I, maybe I did say that then. Um, say, yeah, that was a year after the accident, two years ago, a lot closer than today. And back then, you weren't hemming and hedging about one or two car lanes. You were very clear it was three car lanes. But today, in front of this jury, you're saying one to two car lights, aren't you? Well, I guess so. All right. So that's how you impeach. And when you do it, you do it slowly, deliberately, and you turn to the jury and read loudly and clearly the inconsistent answer so they see it. Okay. Many times you can impeach with really, really good stuff. Um A witness on the sand says something like, I never told him I hit that motorcycle. (laughs) And then you read the transcript. Well, do you recall giving this testimony? You read the answer and you turn to the jury. Um, Yes, I told my husband I hit the motorcyclist. Okay, so you did say it, but you didn't want to fess up in front of the jury. You told your husband, you said in the deposition, but here in front of this jury, you didn't want to give the actual answer. You didn't want to tell the truth. All right, that's how you score points on cross-examination. And then, as you continue down the deposition and asking questions, leading the witness with leading questions, which I talk about in cross examination uh, materials and in my lectures that I've given, you're going to have tight, closed questions, and you're going to know the answers because you've you you have them already. And then so they step out of line, and it's important. That's when you impeach them. And then if they then now that they know that you've got their number, if you impeach them once. The next time they say something and you know you're about to impeach them, maybe you don't have to go through the whole foundation and do everything again. You hold up the transcript and say, are you sure that's your answer? Your answer is only two car lanes? Are you sure about that? Just by holding up the deposition sometimes. Oh, maybe I'm not so sure about that. I, I don't remember. I don't remember. Okay. So it's a great way to get the witness to back to back off and to, and to step in line. All right. Now let me break it down a little bit going through the important foundation questions. Again, doesn't have to be in the exact order that I just gave you, and it doesn't have to be the exact words, but here's what you need to establish to properly impeach. First, lock the witness into their answer. Lock them into an inconsistent answer with the answer you know they previously gave under oath, okay? You've got to make sure they're Opposite, they're contradictory, they're not the same. It can't be room for interpretation. Say, well, that's not inconsistent. Lock them into an inconsistent answer. Once you've done that, you need to lay out the fact that they previously testified at a deposition. They took an oath to tell the truth at that deposition. They did answer truthfully at that deposition. They had a lawyer with them at that deposition they were asked questions and they gave answers truthfully at that deposition they had a chance to review the transcript of their deposition and make any changes if they gave any wrong errors or the court reporter took something down wrong and they either did make those changes but not to this this particular question and answer or they didn't make any changes even though they had the opportunity to a couple of years ago all right mm-hmm. then. You identify the page, you identify the date of the transcript that you're going to read from. I'm reading from the witness's transcript in this case, or if it's a different case, you could say it, dated. Um, then you offer a copy to the court. We have a copy for the court, a courtesy copy if you'd like it. Then you say your honor counsel. Then you identify the page and the line number that you're going to start at. And all of this has to be slow. I, for one, has, have a tendency to speak really quickly at trial uh, and in depositions. The court reporters always yell at me, Mr. Smiley, slow down. You know, I don't even realize it. I get all fired up. But when it's time to impeach, I take a deep breath. I slow down. And then you want to slowly read it. And you want to not only to get it into the record, but you want the jury to see it. They're sitting back like, oh, what's Mr. Smiley doing? Can't wait to see what he's going to read. And they're, they know what you're doing. Right. So they're sitting back and it's great. You take your time. You turn to them and you say three car lengths away. That's what you testify to under oath. That's not what you just told this jury. All right. And then you move on. You've made your point and you move on. So those are the steps that you need to go through. Again, whether you first ask whether they took an oath or you first ask if they have a lawyer, doesn't really matter. The order doesn't matter. The exact words, but the content to lay the foundation to impeachment is what I just went through and what you need to do to properly impeach. So it's very effective. You should always be ready to impeach. That's why you need to digest and to learn more about digesting, check out my other CLEs on cross-examination and definitely uh, take a look out for my book next month. I have examples and I have example cross-examinations uh, in there that I've had Um By the way, the appendices are only in the hard copies. So if you want to see samples, get the hard book, not the um, Kindle version. So hopefully now you feel a little more comfortable. I know it was a sort of a a crash course, but in how to move an item into evidence uh, crisply, cleanly, and properly, and how to properly impeach a witness during cross-examination. I'm going to let Michelle have the floor to do the final poll and wrap it up. And then I will move on to uh, the Q&A, okay? Um, but I encourage you, uh, if I don't get to your uh, questions, please feel free to reach out to me directly. All my contact info is on the screen behind me. If you scan this code next to me, it has a, a link to one-on-ones. If I haven't met with you yet, I've already met with a couple hundred lawyers. They're complimentary for lawyers. We do 30-minute Zooms. Talk about anything and everything you want. Trials, case case analysis, uh, work issues, cars, Whatever it may be, um, and uh, I look forward to to looking at your questions and answering them in the uh, next half hour. Michelle, it's all yours. If you're joining us via podcast, the second attendance verification code for today is P O D seven nine eight. Again, that's P O D seven nine eight. So Sanford is asking, how do you offer a copy of a document where the original is unavailable or destroyed? So you've got to get uh, a fair and accurate copy. You need to um, have someone who can say, yes, uh, I saw the original. This is a fair and accurate copy. uh, And you have to use that in your in your evidence. Um, If it's destroyed and you can't come up with a copy of it, I don't know what you're going to do. You don't have it. So you've got to find a copy. You've got to maybe, you know, get it recreated with someone with knowledge. Uh, But, you know, if it's an original that you need for court, then it could be a problem. Otherwise, a copy that somebody can say uh, is a fair and accurate and true copy uh, is good enough as far as a foundational witness who can get on the stand and do that. Uh, Stephen is asking, Stephen Rosen, how do we get a letter sent to opposing counsel material to a key issue? For example, notice to the other side into evidence if the adversary won't stipulate to its admissibility without making yourself a witness and thereby disqualifying yourself. So you're never going to offer, you know, proof uh, that you exchange something pretrial into evidence. Those are all things that happen behind the scenes with the judge. So what you would do if they're objecting. Saying they didn't give me notice of this witness. Uh, they didn't give me notice of this exhibit. You need to have proof of it. And then you say, Your Honor, we did. We'd like to address this issue and approach. And then uh, you take a short break. You address it with the judge. If need be, you make a record. You have copies of it. Here's my letter. This is it. And then the judge is going to um, address it and say, well, if your only objection is based on the fact that you weren't given notice of this item uh, based on representation from counsel and a copy of this letter, I'm going to overrule it. He's showing me the letter he sent to you. Okay, I mean, I've had it happen even where I don't have a copy of maybe the exchange and um, and i'll say to the judge I represent as an officer of this court that we definitely provided this we can get proof of it I don't have it in court with me today, and subject to connection and the judge will usually accept that and say "All right, counsel just come back tomorrow with a copy of of your notice so that's how you do it you don't offer it in evidence you deal with it with the judge that's how you handle that objection. Okay. Jessica is asking Can medical records, even if not from a hospital, also be admitted without the need for a foundation if they're certified? If not, does the foundational witness need to be the doctor? So, yes, you can get all kinds of medical records into evidence uh without a foundational witness. So definitely CPLR uh 4518 for hospital records. Now for and for hospital bills, they just need to be certified from the hospital. Um, usually you want to subpoena a certified set. That's the safest way, unless your adversary will agree to uh off agree to let you move into evidence or stipulate into evidence the records. Um if you have a certified copy or copy, you both agree is a fair copy. Now, as far as doctor's office records, x-rays, films, uh, I'm sure someone could type into the QA, the CPLR section. I don't have it off the top of my head, but there's a method to getting those in without a foundational witness as well. The law was changed, I think, about 10, 15 years ago. We used to have to drag somebody in, even if it was just an office manager from the doctor's office, if the doctor wasn't coming, uh, to get those in as a normal course of business document. But the law has since changed. I just don't know the CPLR section, uh, where with notice and exchanging and getting a certified copy from them, um, you can give notice and then you can enter it into evidence without a live witness. So it's very helpful that way. So, again, just do your homework. Um, Richard Cordero is asking if a requirement is not stated, uh, in a published rule that applies to you, requiring your compliance with it violates due process. I'm sorry. I just don't understand that question. Um, all right, going back up to the questions that haven't been addressed. Um, uh, all right. It looks like Mila, uh, uh, Pergolitsi, how would you get a police-drafted domestic incident report into evidence? Again, most police reports and records are going to have to come in through that police officer who generated it, especially if it's a domestic incident report where they showed up and the husband and wife or the partners had a domestic incident and that responding officer made notes and took it through. You're going to want that witness on the stand. You're going to want them, you know, just as a practical matter to explain how that report gets generated to confirm that the um, statements contained therein were actually statements that that, police officer Mm -hmm. took at the time contemporaneously with that report, and it was generated during the normal course of business. So again, you're usually going to need to get a police officer in uh, who either drafted it or someone who's familiar within that department or that police precinct uh, to say, yes, this is generated in the normal course of business. Okay. Um, Hi, Andrew, can you please talk about getting a W-2 into evidence through the plaintiff? Doesn't it include hearsay? Earnings records you can get in if it's the plaintiff's earnings records and it's a W-2. You say, is this the W-2 that you get from your employer? And does this W-2 fairly and accurately represent your earnings? Uh, I don't think you would have a hard time getting that in. Uh, And um, there's probably even something in the CPLR for financial records or tax records to get those in. But we would usually move those in. Uh, to establish our client's earnings, we will get those into evidence through the plaintiff or the witness directly. Um, you can also get them through if you have an economist um, and they don't necessarily need to be in evidence, but if it's the something the economist normally relies upon in generating their opinions, you could usually get it in through the economist as well. That would be how I would handle that situation. Uh, Daniel's asking, a family court judge in a bench trial is repeatedly making objection rulings in direct contrast to the rules of evidence favorable to the other side. Look, I mean, you're always going to have a judge uh, or always have a chance, rather, of having a trial judge, bench or jury trial, who's going to give you a hard time about evidence, who's going to block stuff, who's going to let stuff in. Um, You got to make your record clear. You know, you if they don't let it in, and that affects your case, you could renew and re-argue. You could ha- have an off-the-record, make a record, maybe do a memo of law, have prepared. Uh, maybe you can convince the judge to change the judge's ruling. But ultimately, if um, if it's not going your way, there's very little you can do about it. Um, if the judge is not ruling appropriately, uh, not all judges follow the rules of evidence appropriately. And the best you can do is make your argument have the law with you. you know bring with you the rules of evidence. bring with you the rules on hearsay. Um, bring with you a memo of law on something if it's super important and you want to make sure you can get it in. Uh, you want to break, make sure you have memos of law that you could either give to the judge and submit or at least argue uh, when the jury's not present as to make a ruling. So, Your Honor, respectfully, I strongly disagree with your uh, objecting to our ability to move this item into evidence. We've laid the foundation. I have case law to present to you on why this is admissible, Uh, and we'd ask you to allow us to move this uh, into evidence accordingly. And you've made your record, and if they don't, then you have a a record preserved uh, for appeal. Emily's asking, my point regarding introducing new evidence at a trial doesn't apply where OPA hasn't made a formal discovery motion. Um, For context, this is a landlord-tenant succession case. Some documents were exchanged via email. Again, I don't know everything. I only know what I know. And I've never handled a landlord-tenant case. I handle civil litigation and only personal injury law. And usually, unless you identify in advance, uh, then the lack of notice is a proper objection. Uh, Sometimes it can be dealt with. You just take a break right there. If I say I've never seen this before, I object. Um, Then the judge, if I was a trial judge, I would say, all right, we're going to take a break, dismiss the jury for a few minutes. And um, counsel, you know, you can have this document and review it with your client uh, before it goes into evidence and and if you want to make any appropriate objections. So that's usually how that is dealt with. But to be safe, always exchange stuff in advance. You do not want to surprise. But hey, look, I'm a realist. Sometimes you find a juicy piece of evidence that shit, it's the night before this witness. Go to your adversary the morning of court saying, listen, I want to move this in. I didn't get it to you. I just found it. I'm giving it to you now. So you have time to review it. You know, um, hopefully you're not going to give me a hard time about it. I don't think there's any prejudice to you. Um, You just you address it that way. And, uh, you know, if you have something else, I'm happy to horse trade on something that you want to get in. And I've done that before. Um, Otherwise, you try and get it in. You say, I gave it to my adversary the minute I realized I wanted to use it. There's really no prejudice. They've had time to review it. And it hasn't been put in evidence yet. So uh, those are the arguments that you want to make. Okay. Uh, Julia is asking how to introduce an audio recording. All right. So what you're going to do there, since obviously the jury can't hear it until it's in evidence, is you're going to want to deal with that before the jury comes in. So you're going to tell the judge before you call the next witness or maybe even before you start the trial, your honor, uh, we'll be calling um, the plaintiff's spouse to authenticate a video recording or an audio recording that they took. And um, again, this is the same with a video because you've got to play the video, right? Right. Um, and it can't be shown by the jury. So you'll say, we'd ask that we deal with this before the jury comes in uh, while the witness is on the stand or at the appropriate time, take a break. So what you would do is you'll go through everything that I talked about. I want you to listen to this. Um, have you listened to it before? Does it fairly and accurately represent? Um, is this the tape we played for you this morning? Um, Defense counsel had a chance to hear it. Um, So, you would do that all outside the presence of the jury. Make sure you may not even have to play it in the courtroom. You could give a sample of it, make sure it's marked, make sure it's the right one, whether it's the video or the audio. Give it to your adversary that morning or the night before. Say, This is it. This is the actual one we want to put in evidence. Look at it, listen to it. And then you can lay the foundation um, uh, with the juror either in front of or not in front of the jury, depending on whether the judge wants it to be played into the record or not. So that's how you deal with it. Again, if it's something that you can't hide from the jury, like an audio recording, um, if it's something like that, you're going to want to do that when the jury's not present, when the witness is on the stand. Okay. Um, All right. Next question. Brian is asking that you offered into evidence a picture of a parcel of land from Google Earth. The adversary objection was sustained because the photo didn't say when it was taken, but shouldn't have been enough that the client said it fairly and accurately reflected the condition of the parcel of land. I agree with you. Um, If you have a Google image, and those are used a lot these days, and if that Google image fairly and accurately depicts the purpose for which you're using it, okay, and that's where maybe you weren't as clear. Maybe if it's, you know, if it's an overhead and you're using it to show the plot lines, to show where one property ends and the other begins in the parcel, you may want to say in the lines, as you can see them on this Google map or this Google Earth image, do those fairly and accurately depict the lines separating your parcel of land from your neighbors? You know, Um, does it reflect the condition of your land, this photograph, as it existed on the day of the incident? So, In general, it shouldn't matter what the date was. uh, And it never matters what the date is when photographs are taken. And sometimes judges do have a hard time with this. What matters is whether or not what's contained within the image, the document that you're showing to the witness, fairly and accurately depicts what you want it to be introduced into evidence for. And you may have to throw in an extra, how do you know that this Google Earth fairly and accurately um, represents your parcel of land as it's depicted in it. Well, I took it, I printed it out, I looked at it, I went out, I walked through my land and everything matched up, right? Maybe you were missing an extra foundational question. Maybe not. Maybe the judge just didn't like it because it wasn't dated, okay? Um, But again, I would think that that would be sufficient. Uh, Robert Lash is asking, what's the best way to introduce an email chain And what are the issues that come up with that? So as long as you have one party to the email chain, you should be able to introduce it. So if it's an email chain, Robert, between you and I, and even if we've got Michelle on it or somebody else, um, but you and I are throughout the email chain, then I can put uh, or your lawyer can put you on the stand. And here we have an email chain between you and uh, Mr. Smiley. Uh, Or you show them this. I'm handing you what we've marked as Plaintiff's Exhibit 3 for identification. It's a, um, for the court, uh, let the record reflect this is a five-page stapled um, document, set of documents. I'm handing it to the witness collectively, these five pages as Plaintiff's Exhibit 2 for identification. Um, Robert, what do you recognize this to be? Do you recognize it? Yes. What do you recognize it to be? This is a printout of an email exchange I had with Andrew Smiley. How do you know that this is an email exchange that you had with Andrew Smiley? Well, I was the one doing the emails, sending and receiving them, and you could also see my email address is on here on each page, and it's my email address. And you could see Mr. Smiley's email, which I know is his because I've corresponded with him, and um, I've compared this printout with what I actually went through in my email on my computer, and I printed it, it right. I printed it out right off of my computer from my email Outlook account. Um, Does this fairly and accurately represent the email correspondence on these dates as depicted here in um, Plaintiff's Exhibit 2 for identification between you and Mr. Smiley on these dates? Yes, it does. Uh, And will it aid and assist you in your testimony today? Yes, it will. Your Honor, we offer what's been collectively marked as Plaintiff's Exhibit 2 for identification into evidence. So that's how I would do that. All right, David is asking, when a photo or other document is marked as an exhibit, is the same foundation required for an enlargement of the same photo or document as a separate exhibit? Great question, because I run into that a lot. Um, Sometimes what I'll do is if I have the enlargement already, I'll just mark that enlargement as the exhibit. I won't go through the process of offering the smaller item in and then using the enlargement. The reason I do that is because when the enlargement is marked as the exhibit, that enlargement you're showing to the jury in summation. And when if the jury gets all the exhibits from trial into the jury room, which they often do, that nice big exhibit of yours will be sitting there big and prominent, more so than the smaller pages. So when I have that, I will just move into evidence the actual enlarged copies. If somehow I move something into evidence or something is in evidence as plaintiff's exhibit four, and then I get it blown up, what I will say is uh, at the time I use the blow up, Your Honor, I'd like to show this witness an enlargement of what was previously marked as plaintiff's exhibit four. Um, or what's in evidence as plaintiff's exhibit four. Um, If the court would like, can we mark this as 4A, or we don't need to mark it as all, we'll just reference it as an enlargement. So you can sort of play that as it goes, but you're only going to have one put in as an exhibit. You wouldn't have a small version as exhibit four, and then the enlargement as exhibit nine. Uh, Preferably have the exhibits you know you're going to want to have enlarged, enlarged, and then move those into evidence as the exhibit, okay? Hopefully that answered your question. Uh, David is also asking, a home surveillance camera captures the client's motor vehicle accident and the homeowner emails the video to the client. How do you get that video in? You should be able to get it in through your client. I'm showing you this video. Does this video fairly and accurately represent your accident? From, what does this show? Um, you've seen this video. Yeah, this video shows me driving. What does it show? It shows me driving at the time of the accident and the other vehicle colliding with me. Have you seen this video? Um, Does this video fairly and accurately show the impact between your car and the other vehicle? Yes, it does. Um, I think that's how you get it in. And then again, what I would do is I'd have a conversation with my adversary um, and say, you know, are you going to object to this or can we stipulate that it goes in evidence? And if you are going to object, what are you objecting for? Well, I don't know if it's a real video, or well, can, did you show it to your client? So try and work it out in advance. Worst case scenario, you'd have to subpoena the person to say yes, this video was generated from my machine, or perhaps you can work it out in advance with your adversary. Maybe you can get a certification uh, or an affidavit signed by that person saying the next year or two is a video that you know, and you know that says. Uh, nest camera on the top and the date and the timestamp. And this was from my camera. So maybe you can agree with the proper affidavit. Uh, That's how I would try and play it out. You always want to try and do it without having to put a witness on the stand. But if you have to, and it's important, then bring the witness in. But I would make it a point to the judge saying, Your Honor, we have an issue uh, I just want to address. I really don't want to have to subpoena uh, this, you know, innocent bystander to trial. um, But counsel is objecting to me using the video from their home camera footage. We've given them the video uh, for the last two months they've had it. We even got them an affidavit. I'm um, hoping we could sort this out, maybe work it out that way. All right, Andrew is asking, has a lot changed for introducing photos that to lay a foundation for their admissibility that be established that the photo is taken close to in time to the event? Um, well, you know, again, by your witness saying that they were there, and it depicts the condition at that time, then it's in essence, that's what they're doing. They're saying the photo is taken close in time. So you're still, you are going to need to establish the fair and accurate representation part. So when I talked about putting the photo in of the damage to the vehicle, does that show the damage of your vehicle as it existed immediately following this accident, right? If it's that plot of land, does this show your property uh, as it existed at all times that are in question during this case so if it's a defect in a sidewalk you know and you try and introduce a photograph that was taken three years after um and you ask them was this the condition of the sidewalk um and they say yes uh that this is the condition as it was depicted uh, as it was at the time of my fall but if your adversary can show that yeah this isn't it this is a picture taken four years later um and you have an earlier photo then of course that's something you use and bring in and, and show it to them and and make way or you object saying we have reason to believe this photo is not contemporaneous and and you go that way so i think that's how you balance it okay uh, joseph is asking foundation question also requires is it part of the business to make such records isn't it uh yeah i would put that in uh when you're doing the business records so the question that I have in there, you know, was this generated in the normal course of business um, than what uh, Joseph is suggesting? And in fact, it is uh, part of the business to generate this record. So, yeah, you'd want to throw in that question as well. I don't think it's a deal breaker if you don't. But yeah, to be safe, you want to show it was generated in the normal course of business and that it is part of the business to generate these records. So even though they were in their work and they were generating it, it wasn't a one-off. This is what they do every time. It's part of their business to do it. So thank you for pointing that out. I think that is important. All right. Uh, Josh Sanhe is asking, can a custodian testify to the business record? In my example, the police report. With a custodian, can a certified copy acceptable uh, need a stipulation? So as long as you have a custodian of records, so someone from that department, someone from that office, Uh, who can say that they're knowledgeable about how the records are kept, that they are made in the normal course of business. It's part of the normal course of business to generate them. And this was generated in the normal course of business. And yes, I take care of these records. I scan them. I save them all to the right files. It's my job to be familiar with these. Um, Then you're fine. Um, Just a certified copy from that custodian may not be enough. Again, take a look at the CPLR, but see if you can get your adversary to agree that a certified copy from that custodian, uh, if they'll agree to let that um, be admitted into evidence without a foundational witness. Okay, David Kaufman, how you doing, my friend? Evidentiary Foundations by I.B. Winkle Reed has some great scripts. All right, thanks for that. So uh, you can go check out that book. All right, Alan Stern. Isn't the second half of the Business Record Foundation is your duty to accurately maintain these records in the course of your business after asking if these records are maintained in the course of your business? So again, I think that touches on what we just did. I don't think they specifically have to be the one to maintain all of them as long as they're familiar with how they're maintained and that they're part of that process in the office. Yes, I'm part of it. We're, we all maintain these. I'm familiar with the process. Yes, I can tell you this was maintained this way. I don't think they... It's, it doesn't have to be so specific that, yeah, my sole job is just to be the record keeper. Um, it doesn't have to be that specific. Uh, I think as long as they're from that department, uh, from that office... Um, You know, you're getting someone from the stand, from that business, from that entity, and they're knowledgeable and they can say, this is a record. I'm familiar with the record keeping. I think you're good enough. But again, um, it's always best to ask if you do have the actual record keeper. Sometimes you get a home run. You get the exact person who keeps it, who enters it, who's in charge of it bring that out as part of the foundation that, in fact, you're the person, you're the one who who's oversees record keeping for this company, right? And it's your job to maintain these. And you can say this is maintained by this company, that's part of your job, right? So the more you can flush anything out, the better. All right, how does this step differ from a notice to admit from Evan? So this is a little outside of the of the topic, but I'm happy to address it. So a notice to admit, is a great uh, discovery tool and evidentiary tool where you serve on your adversary. Uh, it's called the notice to admit, and you hereby uh, serve them and say that uh, we, you must respond and answer within the next 30 days, I think it is, and you cite to the CPLR or the federal rule and a failure to respond is deemed an admission. And then after that time goes by, if they haven't admitted, it is deemed admitted, Or they may admit it or not. But then once you either have their response or their non-response, either your notice to admit or their response, um, it's a pleading. And you can offer it into evidence. And you don't need a witness on the stand. You could say, Your Honor, we have a notice to admit that we'd like to offer into evidence here where the party admits to X, Y, and Z. You could probably even read it. You could stop and take a break in your presentation. At this, honor, at this time, Your Honor, we would like to read into evidence uh, a response to our notice to admit by the defendants or offered into evidence. And um, and you're allowed to just do it. And you don't need a witness on the stand. So it's great. That's why notice to admits are excellent. Excellent to use a trial. All right, David, again, would well, love to see exactly how you digest a transcript. I use three columns, witness quote, topic, subject, page line. If you can't discuss this, we can do a seminar on this. Well, you just threw me a softball. Um, It's in my book. So make sure you buy my book, which comes out on January 1st. Uh, The Kindle version will also have this part in it. It's right within the content of the book. It's not an appendix. I give you uh, my examples of how I digest transcripts. And then I show you how I use the transcripts and create an outline. And I use the page in numbers to assist me in um, cross-examining. So generally what I'll do is I'll create, and you could type it up, or you can use it on a legal pad or write it up, however you like to work. One column is gonna be page colon line. So the page will be like 15, line colon five. So if the question is, how many car lengths away were you? And the answer is three car lengths. And my question is starts on page three colon, line five and the answer it goes down to line seven i'll put page three colon line uh one two five and then i'll write three car lanes uh in the section next to it so it's usually two columns it's how i do it on mine again there are samples in my book uh on trial skills coming out uh january 1st okay samantha what is the best way to impeach on a deposition if the witness was sent it but it was never returned I know it's deemed admitted, but what if the witness said he has never sent it, did not review it? Well, then you say, all right, well, you didn't review it. Did you ask your lawyer? Did you realize there was a mistake? Did you say, oh, I answered that wrong? Uh, Did you think about it? Uh, Did you bring it to your lawyer's attention? You didn't do anything. You answered those questions and you let it go, didn't you? Or what you do is, even better yet, is you'd say, I'd like the record to reflect Um, that I have my letter here uh, dated such and such to counsel. I'm asking them to have the transcript provided to their client and to sign and return it with any changes, right? So then it's on them. So that's how I'd handle it. If it's a non-party, you need to make sure that when you send non-parties the transcript directly, you keep copies of those letters. You tell them that they need to review it, sign it, and send it back. All right, Stephanie, can you impeach with prior inconsist- with a prior inconsistent statement under oath in a different legal proceeding between the litigants? Yes. Any statement under oath by the witness can be used against them when they're at another proceeding under oath. As I mentioned earlier, we do this a lot with expert witnesses. I get transcripts from experts who have testified in other cases, And instead of impeaching them uh, with a transcript in my existing trial, if I have an inconsistent statement, I'll digest all the other ones, too. Uh, I do that for experts, uh, even before depositions. If I'm going to take a deposition in federal court and I have it, if not certainly for trial, I'll say, oh, you don't think someone could ever herniate their disc uh, as a result of a, a low impact rear end case? Well, do you recall testifying in the case of blah 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 do you recall giving this answer to the following question doctor you know are you saying that under no circumstances answer well yes it can happen in a small impact so yeah you can definitely do that all right stephanie's also asking oh no that was the question all right joe angle how can you provide A copy of the impeachment occurs as a result of an inconsistent statement provided in written discovery that that does not arise until the witness testifies. Filing of written discovery may not occur until the witness testifies contrary to an answer. Uh, I had the experience of showing inconsistent statements to a witness on the stand, inconsistent with an answer to written discovery. But the defense objected because all the written discovery is not included in the course of the examination of the witness. The judge ruled I had to produce all the written discovery, even though the inconsistency was not contained. Um, So, you know, it's difficult if you're trying to impeach somebody from a discovery response. You know, first of all, you got to make sure that they verified it, um, because not all litigants verify the discovery documents, as we know. Sometimes the lawyer will verify it. So. For example, if they testify a trial, let's say a plaintiff testifies that, um, you know, I I never had an injury to my lower back before this accident, but let's say you have a verified bill of particulars that uh, they signed as a individual verification, where in injuries it says aggravation of a prior injury to the lumbar spine. Then you could show that to them and say, well, you signed this verification, where you signed off saying you had a prior injury, but you just told this jury you never had an injury. So that's the way you can use it. Um, But again, I'm not clear exactly what your scenario was, but if you're going to try and use, instead of sworn testimony, some type of discovery or written instrument, um, again, Just make sure you have something inconsistent and you can connect it directly to this witness. They may say, I don't know about that. I never signed that. That was a document my lawyer produced, but I didn't see that. So just be careful about that. If it's not sworn testimony, you're impeaching on. Um, So Stephanie saying, can you impeach with sworn answers to interrogatories? Yeah. If it's sworn by that witness and they answered one way in an interrogatory and a different way at trial, Same thing. But instead of holding it up, say, you recall being asked questions in the written form in this case, known as interrogatories, and you answered them and you signed off on them. Do you recall that? Oh, I don't recall. Well, let me show you. And then you can ask to approach, show it. Um, Or you may ask, do you recall uh, in an interrogatory in this case that your lawyer served on us, that you signed off, you said blah, blah, blah. Let me say, I don't recall that. Well, if I were to show you, would that refresh your recollection? then show it to them. You did sign off on that. You did say this. And that's not what you just told this jury, right? So that's how you would handle it. A lot of great questions. Um, a lot of the answers you can find out, and I appreciate it. I see a lot of people are putting in. Apparently there's a statute on Google Maps, which is great. Thank you, Joseph. Um, so check your CPLR. Uh, you know, Do your homework. Do your case law research. Uh, again, if it's something really important, do your homework so you can get that item into evidence. It's really important. Uh, one final thing I'll touch on was someone asking about what about bench trials and how? It, what if it's an audio file? One thing to keep in mind is bench trials. There's no jury, so a lot of the the pomp and circumstance that goes on in front of a jury uh, doesn't need to happen in a bench trial. I hear a lot of "Save it, Mister Smiley." There's no jury here, you know. When I'm when I just have a bench trial which isn't too often, but so if it's an audio recording, again, the judge is going to hear it anyway. The judge is the finder of the law and the fact in a bench trial. So you can play things right in front of a judge. There's a lot of stuff you could do at a bench trial that um, that you can't do in a jury trial. So you don't need to keep it from the judge like you would in a jury trial because the judge needs to hear it. So bench trials can be a lot smoother, a lot faster, generally speaking, you're gonna go through all your evidence uh, with the trial judge and I would recommend asking to do that beforehand um, uh, deal with any um, issues, evidentiary objections, things like that on a bench trial. So with that being said, we're at 231. Thank you all for tuning in today. Thank you for listening if you're listening on the podcast. Uh, thank you if you've um, checked out already my, had to successfully litigate a personal injury trial book as about 800 of you have purchased already. I thank you. All those proceeds go to my great charities. Uh, Please give a good review on Google. I would appreciate that and keep an eye out for my next book dropping in in January. Reach out to me. Let's do a one-on-one. I'd love to connect. Otherwise, I will see you on January 3rd to talk about personal trainer and gym cases uh, as part of the new series to kick it off and to kick off the new year. Wishing everybody a wonderful, healthy, and happy holiday.